Welcome to the Frankly Speaking Podcast, Friends of Europe's weekly broadcast on the topics of European and world affairs. Coming up this week. What is in the Iran in focus report? Um, is there something different uh, this time around uh, about the protests of the women? Yes, as you mentioned, we had this Iran in focus, about a year long project. But this round of protests, in a way, is unique because it was sparked by the death of this young Kurdish woman, Gina or Mahsamini, in the custody of morality police. Uh, good evening, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Friends of Europe Frankly Speaking podcast. Uh, I'm Jamie Shea, Senior Fellow at Friends of Europe, and it's uh, my pleasure today to make a reappearance in the podcast, uh, this time as the host. Uh, and uh, as many of you will know who follow uh, these podcasts, uh, over the past few months, we've been concentrating very much on the war in Ukraine. But we like to be geopolitical in the global sense and look at other uh, big issues that are making the headlines and which we all need to think about if we're to see the future of global politics. And uh, apart from Ukraine, it's beyond doubt that the other big uh, uh, issue, which has been uh, number one, number two, number three, uh, in all of the news of bulletins over the last month has been, of course, the uh, protests in Iran, this enormous crisis that we see with protests going on day after day, night after night, not just in Tehran, but in many other uh, Iranian uh, cities, all provoked uh, a month ago by the tragic death in police custody of the Iranian Kurdish woman, uh, Masa uh, Armini. Now, uh, in order to throw light on this and to explain what's going on, uh, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome uh, somebody who is a good friend of Friends of Europe. Uh, she's also a European young political leader. She's a writer. She's a journalist. She's a broadcaster. She's one of the foremost international political commentators and experts on Iran. It's Nega Montazavi, who uh, also is the host of a podcast of her own, uh, which is the Iran podcast, and I recommend to all of you. Uh, Nega, uh, thanks for joining us this evening. Um, and uh, Thanks for having me, Jamie. Great to be with you. Well, before the protest started, Nega, we were sort of thinking of having this podcast in any case, because you've been one of the principal authors and certainly the project director uh, of a major piece of work by Friends of Europe called the Iran in Focus report, which was uh, concluded recently and is due to be uh, a launch event uh, uh, in Brussels uh, in the next hours. Um, and uh, of course, when you started this, I, I no doubt uh, you didn't anticipate, maybe you did, but probably not. you didn't anticipate the scale of the protests we're seeing at the moment. So let's start off by my asking you, you know, what is in the Iran in focus report and what elements uh, did you analyze which seem maybe prophetic or at least provide useful explanatory background uh, for uh, this major uh, uh, protest by Iranian women and civil society at large that we're seeing uh, at the moment. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jamie, for having me for the kind introduction. And it's great to be back on the podcast as well. Um, yes, as you mentioned, we had this Iran in focus about a year long project um, that encompassed uh, panel discussions with experts, roundtables with various 
civil society and political actors and also uh, think pieces, as you call critical thinking pieces on the different aspects and dimensions of Iran-Europe relations and also Iran's role in the region and the uh, larger world in general. And we heard from various different, a diverse range of experts in the form of writing in the roundtables um, in different perspectives in Europe, some based in Iran and also in the United States. Um, I think there were different uh, layers that were discussed. I just want to clarify that this all happened and re the report was written and finished before this round of protests started in Iran. Nevertheless, obviously these mass protests have been ongoing and re-emerging in Iran with different sparks. The previous round of large and mass protests, anti-government protests was in 2019. The spark of that was a hike in fuel prices. The one before that, 2009, with the Green Movement and the presidential election. So it's not a new phenomenon that we're seeing, It's all, but it's significant. And I can talk about um, the aspects of the protests, but just going back to the report, we heard from civil society actors who worked on the civil society environment in Iran. We heard from uh, human rights activists, women's rights activists, uh, social activists. We also heard from um, European th uh, thinkers and analysts who worked on Europe-Iran relations, on the nuclear negotiations. Um, and we also heard from some in on the U.S. side who worked and studied U.S.-Iran relations and with a lot of focus, again, on the nuclear uh, program and nuclear diplomacy. Um, so various different areas have been uh, looked at. There were recommendations based on what was discussed in the roundtable and in the critical thinking pieces. And I'm happy to talk about any of these aspects um, if you want, or we can get into the protests as well at any time. Yeah, but let's just get into the protests. Uh, but obviously, please bring in any sort of elements from the Iranian Focus report that you think might help, you know, the non-expert, the general reader to understand a little bit the sort of the, the why as well as the, the how. I mean, you, you mentioned um, the uh, existence of previous rounds of protests, the Green Movement, uh, uh, others over the years. Um, is there something different uh, this time round? Uh, about the protests of the women. Uh, last time the protest uh, fizzled out, didn't they? Uh, people pointed to the, maybe the lack of organization, the lack of leadership. Maybe the regime was particularly good at repression. Uh, it, does this uh, movement have a leadership? Is it likely to, do you think, to be more sustained and more sustainable? Uh, will it have a, a, a more of a lasting impact? So what's similar to but what's different? What, what should we be looking at this time around in terms of how this is likely to play out? Sure, so this round of protests, and also um, I'll talk about previous rounds of protests and the brutality, the violence that was used to essentially repress the protesters by force and send them back home. But this round of protests in a way is unique because it was sparked by the death of this young Kurdish woman, Gina or Mahsa Amini, in the custody of morality police, as our family says, under violence and brutality in her um, arrest and detention, um, and also the state's response uh, to the whole issue. But I think what's unique about it is that it's centered around a women's rights issue. A lot of women 
young girls and allies, uh, women and allies are, are standing up to the security forces, braving essentially bullets, risking their lives and demanding their basic rights, their dignity and to be treated equally as equal citizens. Um, it's also uh, significant, the protests are significant because we're seeing an intersectionality of different communities and different um, sectors of the society joining in the protest. So it's not only women or um, young girls, but it's also university students. We mm -hmm. saw high schoolers, we saw teachers unions, we saw lawyers and most recently oil workers. Um, and each of this, these groups or sections are joining with their own layers of grievances, but also a lot of overlap. So there is political um, underlying political grievances, economic, social uh, grievances that all add elements to these protests and make them um, very, very uh, encompassing in every, it started in, in the Kurdish region and in Tehran and also uh, spread to every province in the country, dozens of cities. And it's also being met with a lot of violence and brutality by the state. So it's, I think it's significant and it's incredible and unique in the way that it's centered around a women's rights issue. And it's led by a lot of women and young girls and the kind of uh, collective and also individual uh, pushback that they're making against the state, the morality police, the security forces, but it's by no means only a women's issue or a feminist uprising alone. It's also all these various different segments joining in with their own grievances against the government. And we're hearing very radical slogans. It's not the main slogan of the movement is woman, life, freedom, which is translated from a Kurdish slogan, Jian Azadi. But it's also we're hearing very radical slogans, death to the dictator, death to the Islamic Republic, slogans against the entirety of the regime and its political class um, that by by these protesters and the various demographics that just seem like they feel they have no other avenue for political change other than the street. Yeah, I mean, the regime has always seemed very secure, of course, uh, in Iran with uh, its uh, military, its uh, police forces. Uh, it, it's been very brutal, as you said, at repression, but effective at repression. Is it still the case now, particularly with the comparatively uh, new president at Raisi? Uh, are you seeing cracks now? I mean, do some in the regime say, look, you know, we can't carry on using repression. We've got to, you know, do something to get civil society back on our side. We can't have a permanent rift between regime and population. This isn't going to work. Are, are there some, I wouldn't say liberals, but at least some people at least who recognize that uh, a new approach is needed or, or do you see this uh, regime still being as, as sclerotic and as unbending as ever uh, and going to go for repression and if it does so uh, is there a, a possibility that this could be a revolution inside Iran a, a sort of you know the, the biggest thing that we've seen since 1979 uh, I remember in a novel by Balzac uh, there's a character who witnesses the early stages of the French Revolution and says to his servant, uh, uh, what is it? And his servant says, it's a revolt. Oh, no, sir, it's a revolution. So can we go from revolt to real revolution or is that really a step too far? Well, Jamie, let me talk about the different aspects of your question. They're all excellent. Well, first I'll address the brutality and I'm gonna read off of a very prominent human rights organization, Human Rights Watch, they're reporting 
is suggesting, I want to talk about the details of the brutal violence the state has used in the past and is using this time around. Um, they've documented numerous incidents of security forces unlawfully using excessive or lethal force against protesters with shotguns, assault rifles, handguns, against protesters and what they say largely peaceful and often crowded settings, killing and injuring hundreds, in some cases even shooting at people who are running away. So from behind, unarmed protesters running away. So the brutality is just immense. We saw the same blueprint in 2009 um, and we saw the same blueprint in 2019. These are all mass protests and then protests in between. In 2019 alone, uh, in a matter of days, if not weeks, hundreds of protesters, at least hundreds of protesters were documented by Amnesty International having been killed by security forces, thousands arrested, many of them handed very harsh sentences. So the, the, the state essentially brought down an iron fist to repress and crack down on these protesters. And uh, they were sent back home. Uh, this time around, we're seeing, again, the same blueprint, disruptions in internet, which prevents the protesters from coordinating, from mobilizing, um, from messaging each other, and from documenting and sending evidence and images outside in the lack or in the absence of independent and free media present, because journalists are also very limited. Foreign journalists have very limited mobility in the country. Those who are present, many of them don't even have access. A lot of journalists like myself are covering from exile. Um, but even the few foreign journalists that are on the ground have very limited mobility as far as what they can cover. And local journalists have been put on, under immense pressure. Many have been arrested. The Committee to Protect Journalists has documented dozens of journalists, many women also, female journalists being targeted, including, I want to name her, Nilou Farhamedi, the young woman who was the first journalist to get to the hospital personally. And she first tweeted a photo of the parents of Vasa Amini hugging and then subsequently was arrested for, for that one photo of the family. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot of pressure uh, that's being put on the reporting, on the, report, on the protesters, um, and it's part of the same blueprint. The, the arrests and the, the violence against uh, the, the events on the street. So it, and the state has shown the capacity and the willingness in the past to use all means, all means necessary, meaning including killing and injuring um, unarmed people on the street to repress the protesters. And this time around, it seems like they're doing it. But on the other hand, there's a flip side to that they're dealing with a very serious crisis of legitimacy. Mm, so yeah. you, can't, you can't bring back legitimacy with bullets. You can, yes, kill, kill people, arrest them, and then scare the other ones to send them back home. But every time you send protesters back home and don't address their grievances and their demands, they're just going to come back on the street, which is what we're seeing happening with another added layer of grievance. So it's not all about Masamini's death. It's not all about the morality police, but it's just this added layer on top of everything that's happened in the past. And that's why we're seeing this intersectionality. But at the same time, it's, it's a very securitized and threatening environment for any form of protest. We are um, seeing pockets of protests still continuing, many in the universities, even at high schools, but we're also seeing a lot of pushback from the state um, to essentially 
wrap it up as they've called it in the back. So it's hard. I don't want to speculate at this point where I'm in awe of the bravery and the courage and it's continued mm, absolutely, for, yes. for weeks now, but um, I, it's difficult to see this. It's, it's a revolutionary moment and also very progressive at the core of it, the women's rights issue. It's not only women demanding it, it's men chanting woman, life, freedom, but it's, I, I'm hesitant as far as speculating uh, as what's going to happen next. It's very difficult, I, I know, in the current situation. But in terms of what the regime would be worried about, uh, I mean, I remember back in the old days in France that if the students protested, it would make a lot of noise, but the government was never truly rattled. But when the workers, you know, the, the workers at the Renault factory uh, down their tools to come out in support of the students and you then suddenly had you know, uh, labor unrest in France, it was a totally different story and the government needed to do something. So um, I'm not sure if that's a good analogy, Nega, but are, are there sort of elements of Iranian society that could join the protest movement which would really rattle the regime, undermine it, maybe make it think of a, a roundtable social dialogue or, or something like that, as opposed to simply a policy of uh, arresting people and putting them in prison? Definitely, Jamie, you point out an excellent point. We're seeing cracks in the system. So among the political elite, be it former government officials, more from the reformists and more moderate camp who are not in power right now, the administration, the presidency, the parliament is all controlled by the more conservative and hardline elements. And in fact, with the presidency of Ibrahim Raisi, the morality police, this very issue at the core of it, ramped up their enforcement and their violence against women. So that definitely added uh, a layer to all of that. But we're also seeing, for example, there was a sitting member of parliament who went on national television, essentially saying, what the, are you doing? What are you doing? What is this? What is this response? What is this violence? We have some, we're hearing from some religious corners in the Iranian society, even mm. hijabi women, there was an online campaign. It wasn't massive, but it's significant when we're talking about those unlikely corners. There was a hashtag on Instagram that said, I am hijabi, but I oppose the morality police. So this is women who observe the hijab in the private of their homes, but they're essentially saying, don't use violence to enforce it on my sister or on my neighbor or cousin who mm. doesn't want to observe it. Um, we even heard from religious scholars pushing back with a religious uh, viewpoint saying this is this is un-Islamic. There's, there's a grand Ayatollah who's a critic of the government, but nevertheless in the country, Bayat Sanjani, who wrote this extensive statement saying this is illegal according to Iranian law, this kind of violent enforcement of the hijab. It's irrational because you're driving young people away from religion, he said. And it's also immoral or un-Islamic. He argues that nowhere in the religion are Muslims ordered to go and commit this kind of violence against women to impose their own reading of the dress code. And also this is significant. Another thing I'm hearing from religious Iranians is that the mandatory hijab is a, a, a specific fundamentalist reading of the religion with Muslims living all the way from Indonesia to Morocco, each interpreting it according to their own tradition and customs and communities. And B, um, this type of enforcement with violence of a religious belief, however you want to interpret it, is just not acceptable by any other Muslim society. Iran is one of two only, if almost with Saudi Arabia, this is also fizzling out. So Iran and Afghanistan are the only two Muslim societies 
where this is being enforced as part of a law and with violent enforcement by the police force. There's a 1 billion Muslims living in the world and many other Muslim countries who are not doing this. And it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the religion, for example, in Turkey, in Morocco, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Indonesia. So why do this? And this is, I think, what's rattling and sort of showing the cracks in the system. Uh, but then at the same time, I want to add that especially from the more hardcore, uh, hardline and conservative, but other uh, factions of the regime, you never see a, a public apology or an admitting of uh, guilt or defeat. It's just going to be um, justification after justification, the alternative narratives they put out as far as Mahsamini having a heart attack and an underlying health condition, which her family denied, or some of these young protesters, the women, the teenagers, one committing suicide, as this state is claiming, they're saying the other one was thrown from a rooftop. And it's just, it's, and putting pressure on the families to to come uh, repeat and approve the state narratives, even arresting some family members. So it's, it's a mixed bag, but definitely we're seeing these cracks in the um, top of the political structure and also among many religious uh, Iranians who are not necessarily part of the political elite, but nevertheless, they come from that religious and traditional background that the state has been relying on and claiming to represent when they're enforcing it. Because let me just say this finally, they, the state doesn't claim that we're, they're using violence to impose an unfavorite dress code on a majority of women. No, they say, this is our culture, this is our tradition, and this is what Iranian women want to look like. Maybe mm -hmm. there's a few here and there who don't like it, but no, most Iranian women actually choose their job and they want to, and that's why they have to resort to this violence. So the religious communities are saying, you know, you're even you're hurting our own image and our belief by imposing what we choose to wear on other women who don't believe it. And this is not just on Iranian women, not just on Muslim women. There's non-Muslim communities in Iran, non-practicing Muslims to begin with, non-hijabi Muslims. And there's also a Jewish community, Christian, Baha'is, uh, Zoroastrians and tourists who are not Iranian, non-Muslim. It's enforced on everybody blanket. And it's just something that um, is bringing that kind of criticism from some unlikely corners. Let me ask you a different question. Uh, I, I saw the Supreme Leader, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini on, on TV a couple of nights ago, uh, blaming everything on the United States, on you know, international anti-Iranian uh, conspiracies, uh, trying you know, to bring Iran down. And um, this, is, this scapegoating, of course, has been well known. But how do you sort of measure the international reaction thus far? I mean, as you know, uh, Nega, the international is always worried that if they say uh, too little, they will be seen to be condoning what's going on, not showing enough support, solidarity. But if they say too much, it plays into the regime's sort of propaganda uh, copybook of, you know, blaming it all on uh, sinister Western interference. So you're, of course, in the United States, so you watch this very closely from there. But, but you know, how do you, how do you see the, the US and the EU, you know, like Goldilocks, you know, too hot, too cold, uh, uh, about right in terms of what they've been saying uh, so far since the uh, demonstrations began? Well, as you said, this is also part of the playbook when top leadership blames, first of all, calls protesters, rioters and di disruptors, 
uh, suggesting that they're out there destroying property and destroying uh, people's livelihoods and creating um, uh, security issues that opens the door for more repression. It's a signal and also blaming it on outsiders and foreigners. Um, it's just been part of the playbook. It puts the protesters in very peaceful protesters in very dangerous uh, positions and it also plays into the treatment of those who are arrested and the very harsh sentences that are given to them. If you're a protester is arrested, a peaceful protester picked up on the street is one thing, but if you're someone who they try to accuse of having ties with a hostile government, then that's an, a whole different set of um, uh, punishment or sentence uh, that you're going to receive. Um, as far as the global reaction, I think Obviously, it could always be more, but we're seeing some very um, hopeful messages of solidarity from international organizations, condemnation of the violence. Uh, we saw some messages from the UN, from EU, from the US, and also we see messages of solidarity from uh, women and men, senior officials, the US President Biden himself, the First Lady, the Vice President Harris, um, uh, from the State Department, uh, various members of Congress just showing solidarity. I think the, it doesn't matter uh, as far as the regime's playbook. There's, they're nevertheless, they're going to blame um, this uh, foreign, foreign um, hostile governments in intervening and they're going to try to put it on protesters. But the messaging matters. So if it's a message of solidarity, it's a condemnation of the violence, you know, praising peaceful protesters. I think that's one thing that um, these um, leaders in the US and EU have seen very much uh, emphasizing peaceful protesters. That's all very, very significant. And it creates a narrative, you know, when the Americans issue a statement, the Canadians follow, when they do, the Europeans follow, when the UK does it, when France and Germany do it, then smaller European countries do. So it's important. It's very important to hear for the protesters, for the activists, it gives them a sense of solidarity that they're being heard, that they're being uh, watched or not forgotten in their own little corner of the world, and that the violence is also condemned. As far as impact, there's limited impact uh, on what these statements or message of solidarity can have, but nevertheless, it's important to show that you're trying. And when it comes to policy, to measures that they've taken uh, two different routes that the U.S. has started, Canadians followed, and the Europeans I see following. One is that the U.S. Um, issued some further exemptions to their technology sanctions. So U.S. has these very extensive sanctions on technology yeah. and uh, devices, applications that American companies and others can provide to Iranians. And they issued further exemption to allow tech companies to provide some more services and applications that can be useful to the protesters and to the ordinary citizen for messaging, for transmitting information, images, uh, photos. So essentially, they, they got out of the way of, of, uh, of this, which helps internet freedom. Obviously, it doesn't help with the government disrupting the internet, but it helps with at least uh, lifting your thumb from, uh, from the wire. Um, that was one good ish, uh, policy. And the other is these designations. That's something that I'm seeing being welcomed by a lot of activists and also uh, just ordinary protesters is a designation, essentially what they're 
coined as human rights sanctions or the designations of um, abusers and violators of rights, of human rights. So the U.S. administration designated the entirety of the morality police, which was then followed by the Canadians. They're designating essentially sanctioning or putting travel bans or asset freezes on top uh, leadership in the, the Revolutionary Guards, on certain individuals or um, senior leadership that are responsible for these rights abuses. Again, it's more of a symbolic how much impact that has. It's only going to have an impact, for example, if that person ever wants to travel to Canada. That's what the impact of a travel ban or if the person ever has or wants to have assets in these countries to then be frozen. But nevertheless, again, there's a symbolic value to it. And then there's also a practical value to it. But other than that, I've seen some calls, not they're not um, encompassing, but some calls, for example, for more economic sanctions. Research has shown that blanket economic sanctions only hurt the population and the civil society, or at least first and foremost hurt the very working class, middle class Iranians that are on the street risking their lives. It's just going to put more economic pressure on them as opposed to the core of the regime. The more militaristic core of the regime has in fact become stronger and more repressive with this economic sanction. So that's um, not, I think, one uh, the, the solution to look for, but also look for creative methods. I've seen human rights organizations or activists calling for uh, more rigorous international mechanisms of investigating these or establishing um, entities at the UN or other international organizations with more funding, with more resources to do uh, more monitoring and investigation of the situation which other human rights, independent human rights organizations are doing, but obviously they don't have the kind of resources and, and um, staffing that, for example, the UN has. So I've, I'm seeing also some calls um, for action like that. Uh, yeah, Nigel, uh, fascinating. Uh, I wish we had more time, but I've only got time for one final question. I need to ask you to answer it briefly, even though it's probably difficult to answer briefly, uh, but we're almost out of time. Uh, is the the government is the regime you know this this clerical sort of theocracy uh with its ideology with its instruments of repression it's been there since 1979 uh unchallenged uh is it capable of evolution uh do you think uh you know realizing that even authoritarian governments you know need at least some consent from civil society if they're to govern i mean it, only in terms of running the economy right um do you see any hope that uh there there could be some sort of reform movement a gorbachev you know like in the soviet union emerging even if only to save the system by reforming it or do you think that it, the regime sort of maneuvered itself into a kind of cul-de-sac where, uh, you know, as was said about the Bourbon in France, uh, they learned nothing and they forgot nothing, so they were incapable of change. Any hopeful signs? Uh, we need to end on that. It's, again, I, it's difficult to speculate. One, one thing that I'm seeing is that many reformists themselves, senior reform um, figures, those who are not under house arrest or in prison, um, are actually, they seem to be losing hope in reform or part of the younger population, the generation who supported them, who voted them in elections, uh, gave them power, are also disenfranchised with the entirety of this idea of reform. But at the same time, when we're seeing this, this power of the state and the capacity and the willingness to repress, 
I think this juncture and this this very moment is another is is one of the most, if not the final turning points where the state needs to make that decision. Is this going to be a continuation of a legitimacy crisis where you can even tolerate your own former officials who are calling for more moderation, more reform, and just a little bit of change um, in a peaceful and bloodless manner? Or is this just going to be more of a continuation in the same direction of violence or brutality and just showing very rigidness and no response to these calls, either from the reformist, moderate, more political corners or from those on the street. Obviously from the chants and the slogans we're here on the street, very radical death to the entirety of the system, to the Supreme leader, the senior leadership, the young generation doesn't feel like there's any path for reform. Yeah. But for reform. They're asking for the end of it. But again, when we go back to what you initially mentioned and I explained the, the capacity of the state and the power of the state um, I think this is the, the, this can only go on for so long and they need to start um, looking at this as a turning point, a watershed moment. And with the cracks that we're seeing in the system, um, think about this legitimacy crisis and, and make a decision. Yeah, well, Nega, this was a real tour de force. I mean, in half an hour, you've really unpacked the situation brilliantly for us and given me, and I'm sure everybody who's uh, listening to this podcast, uh, many uh, super uh, insights. Uh, nobody knows uh, what's going on inside Iran like you do. Um, so thank you. I mean, for my side, a revolutionary moment, but will it turn into a revolution? We're not sure yet. Legitimacy crisis for the regime. How's it going to address it? Uh, the protesters don't seem to be standing down. Down, but how would they organize and go forward? Will other elements of Iranian society uh, uh, join them? Uh, of course, will a, a leadership uh, e emerge? Uh, will there be, a, even if the protests fizzle out, at least some greater scope for democratic uh, free debate uh, in, in, in Iran? Can you carry on repressing a people that uh, uh, has lost faith in you forever? Uh, lots and lots of questions. Uh, We'll probably have to come back to you in a podcast pretty soon uh, to get an update and, and see how the answers are shaping up. But uh, Nega, uh, again, on behalf of Friends of Europe, as always, thanks so much for sharing your time, your expertise uh, with us today on the podcast. I'm sure this is going to uh, uh, have a, a wide journey uh, uh, throughout uh, Europe, United States, and who knows, maybe inside Iran itself. I give up uh, hope uh, never. Um, but uh, listeners, uh, there will be again a podcast uh, next week. Uh, but uh, for today, I Iran has been well and truly covered. Nega, again, thanks. And uh, I wish a pleasant evening to one and all. Thank you. That's it for this Frankly Speaking podcast. Consider subscribing to our newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week.